the 85% not mm-hmm. being guilty of any criminal wrongdoing. Another misconception is that these kids are brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've watched kids make fire in jail so they can smoke. Yeah. I've watched kids um, create sort of systems to, to sort of move around. If there's a range and like 10 is brilliant yeah. and, and like one is like average, yeah. like state college, right. everyone in Harvard is supposed to be a 10. Yeah. The interesting thing about it is that like only people on the inside know that they are not average as kids in Harvard, right? <laughs> I'm James Hankins, a.k.a. Mr. Hankins, a.k.a. Jimmy Appleseed on Twitter. And it's been a long time trying to get this brother on this show. He's uh-huh. in high demand. Uh-huh. He uh, has a lot going on for him. Uh, Eddie Julio, talk to us. How you doing, man? I'm all right, Mr. Hankins, yo. <laughs> <laughs> it's, been, it's been a few weeks, you know. It's sort of been, uh, I've been slacking. I'm a little busy, but yeah. I am, I am James. First, I want to sort of take a moment to recognize the work that you do, the person that you are. The mercy that you always demonstrate, <laughs> the wisdom, um, it is my pleasure, my brother. Well, I really appreciate that, man. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a labor of love to be able to have a conversation with, with mm-hmm. somebody who's also doing uh, great work, doing mm-hmm. doing doing work on behalf of, of people who don't get a lot of work done on behalf of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll get into that in a yeah. few. Uh, but first and foremost, what's good? What's happening? What's positive in your life? What's happening? What's going on? You know, James, it's so interesting that that's the first question you always ask, mm-hmm. right? That, like, tell me something positive. I just want to share something. I don't want to get ahead of the agenda. But the one thing, so folks are soon going to learn that, you know, about my work experience, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a quick spoiler. Yeah, I was a creative writing instructor on Rikers Island. I've directed... Um, and help sort of lead workshops at different prisons across New York State. But one thing that I would always ask my students when I got to Rikers, the very first thing that I always made sure to ask them was, tell me one positive thing that's happened this week, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Because, uh, you know, folks on the outside are sort of under the impression that life changes entirely once you're incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And it does, but good things happen on the inside. People reconnect with their parents that they hadn't spoke to in years. Um, people have kids. Unfortunately, they can't see them, but things do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, people get attorneys that, are, that sort of give them good news on their cases, so on and so forth. Good things happen. So I was just, uh, I was really curious about the fact that you start your shows that way. Um, but to answer the question, one good thing that happened this week for me is... Um, um, I read a really good book. Okay. Yeah. And what, so, what was the book? Tell us about the book a little bit. And first of all, you reading a book is not anything new. That's a regular occurrence. That's a regular occurrence. That's a regular occurrence. But what did you read that's this really week thing. specifically that inspired you, made um, you feel good? You know, uh, this week I read Hamlet. Okay. I was reading Shakespeare's Hamlet. Um, and I kind of took my time with it. I wanted to enjoy it. Um, I kind of wanted to savor the pages and the reason why I'm excited about reading Hamlet is because now I'm trying to put together a, a sort of um, a, 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 a collection of books that I will then go on and teach when I'm done here. Um, and the interesting thing about Hamlet is that uh, students, like students that we teach are often sort of unexcited about books like mm-hmm. Hamlet, about some of these dead white authors, as, as folks often refer to them. Um, but the funny thing about Shakespeare is that Shakespeare is mischievous. Yeah. Shakespeare is humorous. The, you know, I think that there are a lot of themes that the students we work with would enjoy in the Shakespeare. If they got over that sort of 
initial sort of resistance to him. Absolutely. Which comes in the form of how we present, who mm-hmm. he is, a white male, the the 15... He was writing early in the 1500s, right. et cetera, et cetera, and those kind of things. So I was excited about sort of discovering these things in the Shakespeare the students might be excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, if if I could present it to them the right way and discuss it the right it, way. It reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, Jabari Sellers, who was on initial episode, uh, first episode, actually, that was released of this show and his connection with with comics and trying to connect comics to the classroom. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, the stories that we see in comics or film or television, in a lot of ways are inspired by works like Shakespeare. Like Hamlet Mm -hmm. in itself is not a new story if you watch any television or movie nowadays because they're telling the same story in different ways. So that's interesting to pick that back up and try to think about Mm -hmm. how to reconnect it. And thinking about reconnecting, let's reconnect you back to to the beginning. Where, Where are you from? Uh, talk a little bit about your experience growing up, going to undergrad, some of the challenges you might have faced in that sense, and then also discuss uh, some of the work that you did after you graduated undergrad, which is a huge part of what inspires mm-hmm. you today. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm from the South Bronx, you know, shout out to, <laughs> shout out to the BX. Nah. Yeah, so I'm from the South Bronx, and, um, you know... Um, I, I always tell folks, James, should I speak up? Is this fine? No, this is good. All right. good. I always yeah. tell folks that my mom saved my life. Okay. You know, because um, in these neighborhoods, there's so much and there are so many temptations. Um, and they're hard to beat. But my mom was sort of vicious and monstrous when I was growing up. And that was the first lesson on tough love, mm. right? Um, that I got this sense that she wasn't beating me for beating me sake, but that she was beating me to try to save me from something else, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. My mom was beating me to sort of preempt a more capricious state violence gotcha. that I could fall to, you know, um, or be victim to. Um, and um, when I realized that my mother cared so much, right, because she would beat me, then come back and cry about it. And so I realized that this wasn't something she was enjoying, right? Um, when I realized that she was beating me about education and beating me about reading and beating me about these things, um, I started to take a sort of real interest in them. That's how I came to love books. I was like, well, there has to be something to this Mm -hmm. if my mom is so serious about it. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I thought that my mom had my best interest at heart. Um, And so I began to read early on a ton, you know. Um, And when when I say that she saved me, I say that she saved me from all the other things that were happening outside, right? Like, let's say, for example, I didn't have the books. I would have spent a lot more time outside, and I could have been subject to sort of the state violence that yeah. we see so often from police officers, gang violence that we see so often in the hood, yeah. and all these different iterations of violence that happened, right? Um, and, and not that I wasn't around those things, not that I didn't participate in any of those things, but that... Early on, I had this sense that there's something else out there and that I should be careful, Mm -hmm. right? And I was sort of maneuvering between these two identities and trying to balance them out. And in the end, I think that I did pretty well. You know, I made a lot of mistakes, but I think I did pretty well. What did you you read early on? And and how did you take what you read as a young, young man growing up? And how did you take those experiences from what you read? And what did you learn from some of the stuff that you read early? What were some of your Mm -hmm. favorite... Well, Toni Morrison. Yeah. Toni Morrison in the pantheon of great American writers, I think, is the best writer alive today. Okay, okay. She's the best writer alive today. Um, and so, you know, my mom is Dominican. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself am, 
and Afro-Latino. Mm-hmm. My mom is Dominican, and, you know, in Caribbean cultures, colorism is a big, contentious issue, right? So for a child like me who is darker skin, et cetera, et cetera, in a family where there's some sort of variance, right, in the colors, um, I was often made fun of, mm-hmm. and, you know, there's all these different sort of names that people call darker skin youth, et cetera, et cetera. And you begin to sort of feel self-conscious about it. Um, I remember when I was young, I would sort of, one, I don't like the sun that much, but like I would hide from the sun with an umbrella because I didn't want to get too dark because I just didn't want to get made fun of and I thought that women thought it was unattractive, et cetera, et cetera. So now I'm fine with it, but Toni Morrison taught me a big lesson on that. Um, And Toni Morrison inspired me to write Mm. because she helped me understand that you could speak to real life through fiction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was a big book, James, that kind of, Changed the course of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you as you did that, you read you 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 had a mother who cared deeply for you doing yeah. something greater than yourself in your yeah. life. You know, getting to a point where you were going to be a success and you were going to show yourself to the world for what you've accomplished and what you can accomplish. What made your decision when you decided to to go to the undergrad that you went to? Talk a little bit about that experience in and of itself and what kind of, how that kind of informed you as a young person to make you who you are today? Well, that's a good question, James. So, so I was thinking about three schools that I really wanted to go to. Um, well, four. Mm. For some reason or another, I'm not even quite sure yet, um, I wanted to go to St. John's in Queens. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go to Princeton University in Jersey. I wanted to go to Columbia or Cornell. I had applied to a bunch of schools, but those were the schools that were sort of seriously on my radar right. and that I was thinking about. Before I can say any of that, I have to address the fact that I went to a high school that was sort of decent, right? Okay. Okay. Like, my mom had to pay tuition, but the way it works in New York City, especially, um, it, well, I, I, I mean, don't quote me on this, but I think that this is still true. New York City has the most segregated educational system in the country. Yeah, that's what we've been talking right? about. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that's because there are people that can afford to send their kids to $40,000 yeah. sort of grammar schools. And then there are people like my family and other families in the Bronx and Brooklyn where, where the sort of poverty is in high concentration mm-hmm. that can only afford like some of the worst public schools or some of these Catholic schools mm-hmm. that are private. They can basically sort of guarantee your parents that you'll make it out of high school. You're not going right. to die. You're not going right. to go to jail. Right, right. You're going to be all right. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I went to one of those schools. I didn't think it was very rigorous. We had one AP school, okay. one AP course, et cetera. Um, and I say that to say that our counselor at the time was kind of trash. Okay. Like, I didn't know about AP. I didn't know about a bunch of shit. But um, can we curse on this? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, Speak freely. Speak freely. Speak freely. I, yeah. I, so I didn't know about a bunch of things. Um, James, and and I think in the end it hurt me because I would have went harder for like maybe Ivy Leagues. I didn't know what Ivy Leagues meant in the yeah. world. So in the end, I ended up visiting the school that was basically scouting me and recruiting me heavily because they were like, yo, this kid is black, <laughs> uh, he's smart, you know what I mean? Yeah. We can give him a bunch of money, we won't get him to come here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I ended up going to the school because on the visit, St. John Fisher College, yeah. upstate New York, on the visit... I had sort of, I was walking around with other folks of color. Yeah. It felt comfortable. It felt good. When I got there, I realized that the school was actually 98% white. That's or something good. like that. So they, they put a little, like, 
a little little bug in your ear to yeah. make you believe that this was a more diverse campus than what it was, and then you got there and it was. Yeah, I got there and I fell for the okie doke. Yeah, but something interesting happened there, James. You know, I had never been in the classroom with a white person until I got to college. Wow. That's okay. tragic. Never in my entire life. Yeah. That is true today for students in the Bronx. Well, things are changing now because of gentrification right. and so and such. But like I think largely it's still true for students in the Bronx, some students in Harlem, depending on where you live. And, and Brooklyn. Want, right. And I want people to think about that for a second yeah. because my father is seventy two years old. He went to undergrad or undergrad at North Carolina A T State University. But he was growing up during segregation, segregation. in the South mm -hmm. and had never been to school with a white person. Mm -hmm. And here I am talking to somebody who's my age, 32, wow. who all the way through high school until wow. college had not been to school with a white person either. And we say we've made progress. Mm -hmm. So continue. James, that's a brilliant point. I'm, I'm glad you connected those dots. I mean, um, yeah, it just goes to show maybe another 40 years later and they're still kids. Yeah. And, you know, this is the difference between de facto and de jure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I mean, of course, these people know what they're doing. There's still zoning laws and all this kind of stuff that in the end make sure that kids are going to school segregated. But, in, you know, to get back to the point, that had been the case. And when I, got to, when I got to undergrad, I realized maybe for the first time that I was a raced man. Okay. Right? When I was in high school, I had realized that, like, it struck me that some of my friends in the city were rich, mm -hmm. and that like most of the people that lived in my neighborhood were poor. Were poor. So I was aware of class, yeah. but not so much about race, okay. because no one treated me different because there was no one different, <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. Um, so when I got to college, people were telling me things like, you speak different, and this and that, and like people were looking at me askance, mm -hmm. and people were doing things that made me feel odd, and sort of, it really brought attention to the race thing, right? And so... I'm sort of grateful for that experience, but also, like, I was deeply hurt. I think there, were, there was a moment where I wanted to transfer. Um, in college, to get to the, to get to, to get to the, to the academics, um, I was an English literature student. Mm -hmm. um, and again, we talked about some of the book stuff and, and the early love for literature. Um, and in college, I got really into the books, right? Um, and, 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 and books came alive in this way that they hadn't before. And, and um, books became this this sort of opportunity to sort of exercise this radical empathy, mm. to imagine yourself outside of yourself, right? Mm. Um, in the position maybe of a 32-year-old woman, um, in the position, in, in, in the bluest eye, right, of a young black girl who wants so badly to have blue eyes, mm. um, as a young Russian aristocratic boy in the case of Tolstoy, mm. right? Um, and so... This is when I first began to think that, you know, maybe, maybe I could write a book someday. Um, but the tragic thing here is, James, that even as I was put into, like, all the cool honor classes, yeah, right. and even as professors sent me all the nice sort of flattering emails, some reason I still didn't believe that I could be the person that could write the very books that I was reading. Yeah, yeah. And I think that has something to do with representation. Yeah. I didn't see any people like me. Um, writing books. Yeah. And there were plenty. I want to make this distinction, James, because this is the, the kind of fight that I want to fight. There were plenty of black novelists. Yeah. That's not the case. Plenty of Latino and Latina novelists. Mm -hmm. But there are sub-identities within identities. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about I was from a very specific place that I was proud to be from, right? Mm -hmm. I'm from the hood. Mm -hmm. I had tattoos. Mm -hmm. I spoke in vernacular. I gestured certain ways. Yeah. And to me, these novelists didn't strike me as that kind of 
black or Latino. And not to say anything about them, but that there seemed a distance between them and I. And that distance played itself out in the communities and yeah. colleges because some of the sort of middle-class black folks mm-hmm. or some of the black folks who just wanted to move away from that kind of the ecology of the ghetto, right? Like the ways of being of the ghetto didn't really want to be around me. Yeah. And so and so that's what I mean. And yeah. I want to make that point that like that wasn't the representation I was looking for. That's changing now. Mm-hmm. We have novelists now like Mitchell S. Jackson, like uh, Reginald Dwayne Betts, um, like like D. Watkins from Baltimore, that, that are sort of on the forefront of that thing. That, that like Juno Diaz, yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ, how yeah. to forget him? Um, who I see a version of myself yeah. in, and that's the kind of representation that we need. Is there a bit of uh, respectability that goes into that? I had an argument, or not an argument. I mean, I'm talking entirely about right, respectability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I, had yeah, yeah. I had a discussion yeah. with a friend of mine the other day about uh, respectability politics, mm-hmm. and he's a firm believer. Uh, I say he's a firm, he's a firm disbeliever in the idea that respectability po- politics are harmful. He, he mm-hmm. believes that us folks of color should carry ourselves a certain way mm-hmm. and kowtow to a lot of rules and regulations that have been set mm-hmm. by a white dominant, white privileged society. Um, how would you? How do you respond to people who say? Well, if you if you're planning to work for this company, you sh- you should have to cut your hair a certain way. Or if you if you want to 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 get involved in this industry, you need to carry yourself a certain way, or dress a certain way, or or cover up your tattoos or, or anything like. How what how would you respond to somebody who says that's the world, that's the that's the way the yeah. world is, uh, yeah. and you're talking about you know people of color getting opportunities, they, they don't just do these little things. Maybe they'll have more opportunities to get involved in some of these places they've been shut out before. Mm-hmm. How would you respond to somebody like that? James, I would have to respectfully disagree with you. <laughs> in fact, I think I have to vehemently disagree <laughs> because I am of the mind, and like I really believe this, respectability politics have destroyed the community that I love most. Mm-hmm. America is basically presented to us, to folks like you and I, to folks like from the hood, an ultimatum, right? And what they're saying to folks is, if you want a piece of the American pie, if you want some of the success, you must extinguish yourself effectively of who you are, of all your sort of cultural um, treasures and gifts and symbols. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and you must look like this. Or or as Baldwin might say, you know, um, in America to be human is to be closer in proximity to whiteness. I'm paraphrasing there, but he's basically saying, if you want to count in this country... Right. You can't look like this. You can't speak like that. And the problem with that, James, is that what young folks do that you and I teach is they go, well, fuck it. (laughs) I'm going to do it my way. (laughs) Right. And oftentimes what they go do then is they go sell drugs. Yeah. Um, Excuse me. They go sell drugs. They go get into this. they, They go get into that versus an America that I imagine that could be more accepting and say, listen, come here with your tattoos. Come here with your with your sort of vernacular, with your gestures, with your style of dress and speak, whatever it may be, and, and we'll accept you. Now, that is not to say, I'm not making the case that you should show up to an interview or to your job yeah. wearing Jordans right. or wearing phone posits and, right. you know, except, uh, blasting music. Yeah. You know, there's a time and a place for everything, yeah. right? And so I think... Um, that gets into another argument about deracializing intelligence, yeah. deracializing professionalism. Yeah. Because then the, the what what some of the folks that we work with would argue is, 
well, they want me to look and dress and act white. Well, yeah. that's not acting right. or dressing or looking right. white, right? right. Um, and so I do think that there's a time and a place for everything, but I do not, I am against black or any any folks that argue the case that we can't be us in any space yeah. at all, yeah. right? Yeah. And so what's wrong with my tattoos? Right. right. What's right. wrong with the way I like to dress? Yeah. If you got a problem with that generally, mm-hmm. then then I think there's some sort of introspective stuff that you have to do. I think what's, what's interesting about what you just said is I think a lot of us here have made a concerted effort to be ourselves. And I, it's, I'm talking about black folk, people of color in general. I think in a lot of ways we were in a space where we recognized this is Harvard University, all the accolades and all the mm. praise that goes with being at Harvard University, mm. but also not switching, not, not code switching so much. You mm. know what I mean? Not mm-hmm. talking in the class how you speak to anybody else. Mm-hmm. I always try to pride myself on having conversations with you as I would talk to my parents, as I would talk to my students. I'm talking the same way I'm going to talk. This is how I speak, you know? And not really worrying about if I'm using vernacular. Like I said, today in class, I said homeboy and homegirl in reference to to, to mm-hmm. colleagues of mine, yeah. I could have said colleagues. I could, yeah. but that's what I say. It's homeboy and homegirl, you know. Um, and James, I think you're doing. I don't mean to cut you off. Yeah. but I think you're doing. I think people often sort of, um, they sort of they they don't have a high enough appraisal of those small small gestures. Yeah, I think that that matters, and that those small little moves that we're doing and that we're making in the classroom they sort of begin to build and build and build. And that's how you shift cultures. Mm -hmm. Somebody said, James did it. Well, maybe I should try it. And then other people do it, and then other people do it. And then that's how cultures of the classroom change, Mm -hmm. of the workplace change, et cetera. And so... It's almost like a a subconscious evangelism in in that mm -hmm. sense. in, In that sense, you are being yourself... And evangelizing that others can be themselves too by just doing what. That's you're brilliant. Doing. That's so brilliant. I, I think that's an interesting that way. way to put it. Um, in that sense, you know, as we talk about res- the idea of respectability politics, and we and we talk about these things, we know that in a lot of ways, you said respectability politics have led to a lot of uh, damage to our culture. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, a lot of that damage to our culture comes from where we are, anti-respectability. <laughs> if y'all could have seen, there's a lot, bro, he's got that tattooed on his body, anti-respectability. <laughs> anti-respectability. Uh, but as we recognize the damage to our culture, and we talk about um, what what has hurt us the most, you would advocate for the idea that the prison system has done some of the greatest damage yes. to our people as mm-hmm. is. So talk a little bit about what led you to get involved in teaching in the prison system and some of the experiences that you had that kind of informed you at this point? Um, that's a good question, James. I think that I'll give you, there were, there were two kind of answers to this. One, when I was young, I had a friend who would always hang out with us. We would play football, et cetera, et cetera. And he was a good dude. Um, he was funny. He was charming. He kind of had a swagger to him mm-hmm. that was unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as a young man, you sort of begin to idolize some of these folks and you want to be like them. And um, and then I don't know what happened. I was too young to kind of tell, but he ended up going to prison. Okay. I knew that much. I could sort of discern that much. Um, when he came out of prison, he had sort of lost all his magic. Yeah. And you know, as a young sort of, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna call myself a precocious child, <laughs> but like, as a young child, that I think I was kind of like, I could, I could pick out details, right? Um, yeah. Um. I realized that like. Well, he, he he went in this way, 
he came out this way. The machine did something to <laughs> right. him. You know yeah. what I mean? Right. And so, you know, that was kind of, I, I, I gathered that much. And then uh, what happens is um, a few months later, he went on to take his own life. Yeah. Right. And so that was like the first thing that made me curious about the institution of prison as it was. And then, James, to be frank, um, the next thing that happened was that, like, I live in a place where it just, ha it just so happens to be that, like, everyone around you is just going to prison. Mm -hmm. Everyone around you is going to jail. And so you become curious about circumstance, about the place, about uh, why us, mm -hmm. why people who look like me. And it always feels eminent. Mm -hmm. It always feels like the threat of prison is looming. Because if we look the same, it's not, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's like there's a good chance that I could end up there yeah. if there's not too much of a difference between us two, right? right? Um, and so, you know, I saw my skin in the game. I thought the stakes were high for me, too. That's another thing that made me interested uh, and curious. And then last, James, I would say this. I always love to ask people. I, I always think the more interesting question is why not get involved yeah. in, in sort of what I would call uh, and, what, and what a good friend of mine calls... Um, uh, uh, I forget what he calls it, but um, he it's something to the effect of like a human. He says uh, is human something work. Um, like why we should all be in the business of sort of, of of like uh, of of helping someone that's down, yeah. of helping yeah. the other, of helping yeah. the sort of the outcast, the less the, the sort of disadvantaged. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And in that sense, you were always interested in the work. Mm -hmm. You, you got into the work. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about what you did. Tell the audience what you did while you were there. Um, and you, you talked earlier on, and when we first started, you, you spoke about how you talked about you wanted to tell your, ask your students to tell something that was good mm -hmm. that happened throughout the week. And you, you've told other stories and experiences on campus, and you, we, could, we could talk for three or four hours about mm -hmm. some of the experiences you had. But to relate to the audience some of these experiences, some of the myths uh, uh, misconceptions they might have about mm -hmm. people in prison, in prison or people like us in prison or, or young, especially young people young of folks. color in prison. So, mm -hmm. so talk a little bit about your work there. Well, James, I would say first, you know, a big mistake that people often make is this, right? Let's, let's, let's make the distinction between um, prison and jail. Mm -hmm. So jail is a holding cell where you await trial. Mm -hmm. So people in jail haven't been sentenced yet. Mm -hmm. Prison is where you actually serve out the sentence. Mm -hmm. So my early work my early work started out in jails, mm -hmm. right? And so the interesting thing, let's let's consider Rikers, for right. example. On Rikers today there's a population somewhere about of like eight thousand folks. Right. Right? Of those eight thousand folks, James, eighty five percent this is the men's facility. Yeah. There's also a women's facility that I'd love to talk about. Um, in the men's facility, 85% of those 8,000 folks haven't yet been convicted of any criminal <laughs> wrongdoing. Yeah. So they're there because a lot of times they can't afford to bail out, mm -hmm. as was the case with Khalif Browder. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have good representation, so on and so forth. So I want to say that first, right? So that's one myth that we should clear up. Yeah. That not everyone in jail is, 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 is guilty, yeah, right? Right, um, right. The next thing I'd clear up, and just to add on to that, is a lot of times, right, the new sort of Jim Crow, I wouldn't call it this, but, like, the big problem now is sort of all this power that prosecutors have. Mm -hmm. What happens is that these young kids, all right, so I go to your neighborhood, I round up 50 kids, a big indictment. Yeah. I go to your neighborhood in Brooklyn, I round up 50 kids, big indictment. Um, 
10 of these kids, 15 of these kids are like 16, 17 year olds that are always hanging out with other people that have maybe carried guns, um, shot at rival gang members, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. I tell these 15, 16 year olds, listen, we see you in pictures with these folks. We know that you hang out with them. Mm -hmm. We could hit you with conspiracy. You could face this much time. So right now you have some options. Yeah. These are some of them. You can get an attorney and take this to trial. We know these right. kids don't got no money to get an attorney, yeah, right? right. Yeah. Or you can take this plea bargain, right? Yeah. You can take this deal. You sort of, uh, you you know, you plead guilty. Yeah. You do two to three years and we let you out. Yeah. Because you don't want to cooperate, right? right? And so and that's the third option. But nobody in the hood wants to cooperate because then actually your life gets a lot worse. Right. Um, so these kids are like, all right, I'm going to just take a deal because I can't take it a trial. Yeah. If I take it a trial and I blow a trial, I get 20 years. Yeah. I get charged with the most severe offense in the, in the indictment, right? right? Um, so, the, so, so this is the quick way to get everybody in jail, right? Yeah. And to get everybody to do some sort of time. So that's the that's bad part about the sort of the 85% not mm -hmm. being guilty of any criminal wrongdoing. Another misconception is that these kids are brilliant, James. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've watched kids make fire in jail so they could smoke. Yeah. I've watched kids um, create sort of systems to, to sort of move around. Um, sometimes, honestly, like drug paraphernalia yeah. and yeah. drugs that they need to survive right. in there um, and to actually make money so they can call family, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, I mean, you know, I've watched them build contraptions to sort of, so you, every night, you know, you have to lock in, yeah. and they close the actual cell gate, but they've built these little contraptions with toothbrushes on Rikers so yeah. that they could actually pop the cell and come out and, like, <laughs> go talk to friends yeah. and stuff. So it's never been a question about academic aptitude or, or, or about sort of the capacity. Yeah. It's just the circumstance, you know? Yeah. Um, if you don't have the resources in the schools to sort of optimize these gifts, then they go to... Ways yeah. and, and we see them manifest themselves in different ways, like for example, in jail. Mm -hmm. So you, you as you saw this and as you you witnessed some of the brilliance of your students while they were in jail. What what kind of responses would you give them? What kind of responses might you hear from them about how to reform this uh, system? Like we we exist in a prison industrial complex. We know how prisons mm -hmm. work. Um, mm -hmm. We we know that they are are, are profit making machines. Yes, yes. Um, how would you reform this system? What have you heard from some of your students about what needs to happen, or experiences their students mm -hmm. had that made you think about things that need to happen to reform that system? That's a great question, James. Because what you do in that question is you position the students or the prisoners as the consultants. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's what happens. That's what does not happen often enough. Right. right. We want to talk to the theorists, <laughs> yeah, right. the right. professors, right. and we leave out the students. A, a friend of mine, um, Glenn Martin, always says those closest to the problem are often closest to the solution, mm -hmm. but furthest from the resources. Mm. So I just want to thank you for, for the way you frame that question. Um, I've talked to my students a lot about this, and my students would start with maybe something about, like, they would talk about education first, yeah. for sure. Okay. I've had students tell me, I'd rather be in jail than in school. And I say, uh, why? And yeah. they say, because jail, because the schools often feel like reproductions of uh, the jails, jail, uh, right? The, the, the world mm -hmm. of the jail, the, the sort of, the, 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 the infrastructures, mm -hmm. um, the, the CEOs, mm -hmm. um, the roles that they play, it feels, the, the classrooms and the schools feel like reproductions of that. Mm -hmm. And so students would say, yo, a lot of us wouldn't be in here 
if we had better teachers, yeah. if we had better curriculums, if we had people who just saw the humanity in us mm-hmm. and treated us better, they might start there. Also, they would talk about jobs. Mm-hmm. I think that it is also a system issue. They would talk about, yo, sometimes we we have to hustle because I got a kid. I can't feed a kid all yeah. the money that I'm going to make at McDonald's, yeah. which is valid. Yeah. But James, and you know, this will lead us to, to the different conversation maybe about, well, we'll touch this um, with Nerd Gang, but like, there's this big campaign now in the Close Rikers, right? Yeah. And to me, it felt a little cosmetic because something that me and my students talk about is like, uh, what about the culture of violence on Rikers, yeah. right? Which is to say, the students do assume some responsibility for the things that they actually do in jail. Yeah. Right. And I respect that, and it's something that I've... It's a lifelong preoccupation of mine to think about cultures, right? Mm-hmm. And the things that we do in our responsibility in reshaping and reforming. And so a student once said to me, yo, when we close Rikers, I hope they know niggas is just going to go somewhere else and turn yeah. out. Yeah. And that struck me as both brilliant and tragic because the, the question that I want to reckon with is, all right, I do think that there is a good argument Right to close Rikers and yeah. close other jails and to reform where we can, mm-hmm. right? Um, but that what happens at other jails when we change, when we shift them, when we put them in other places? What happens with that culture of violence? Yeah, right. And yeah. the way I've seen it exalted, we got to be honest about yeah. these things, and it hurts. Yeah, right. I mean, there's context to that, but what do we do about those things? And so the students are both concerned with the culture, and also with the system. That, it, that make this occasion possible. Yeah. yeah, the system is a great point. The system puts this in place, allows these 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 things to exist. I believe there's power in symbolism, like closing Rikers makes mm-hmm. is, a, is a symbol, is a powerful symbol to people. But so is closing Guantanamo Bay. That's a symbol. Yes. And close Guantanamo Bay doesn't mean that they're not just going to transfer the same type of, of quote-unquote prisoners, suspected terrorists, or whatever, to another facility and do the exact same thing that exactly. they've been doing before. Um, and you also made a point that I also wanted to, to, to touch on, too, talking about jobs and how important it is for, for these young people to have access to jobs. And when we think about recidivism, we think about the fact that these people leave prison and don't get access to good-paying jobs, Absolutely. living wages, so that people can take care of themselves and take care of their families. Can I tell you a quick story? Yeah, yeah. Now that you talk about that, look how, look how fucked up the system is, right? Um, and, you know, we talk about second-class citizenship. Mm-hmm. This is a story here. A friend of mine, long story short, served in the, uh, in the military mm-hmm. for, for years. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, 12-plus years. Mm-hmm. Uh, came home from, like, maybe four tours in Iraq with PTSD, yeah. which is often the case. Yeah. Got into a scuffle, overreacted on the train in New York City, um, ends up going to jail, gets a felony, loses his veteran, uh, his VA benefits. Wow. You know what I mean? For the felony, loses his VA benefits. Because when he came home from war, um, it just wasn't true. Like, he he, he was sort of, there was no sort of, there was nothing to come home to. Yeah. Right? Um, And this is something that, you know, is talked about in, 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 in detail in politics today. But, like, uh, it's just tragic yeah. that like some of our soldiers are returning to 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 no real uh, mental health care, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, no real opportunities, mm-hmm. working opportunities. 
they, they sort of accommodate the, their mental health issues and sort of sometimes even their, their bodily abilities yeah. after war. Um, and long story short, he ends up catching this charge and then loses. This guy who just served right. the country in yeah. this way loses yeah. his VA benefits because he was a felon. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's that's the way it tends to be. I think in this nation, in a lot of ways, is is these laws are not written uh, to look after people who have served the nation the hardest, whether it be people in the military, whether it be educators. Mm. You know, we, we, we really don't point. look after uh, the people who are in service to the country for various different reasons. Basically, public sector people. And I like, I, like, I like how you flexed it yeah. and how you stretched that sort of the, the, the story about being a public servant, yeah. which in effect is what people in the service do, right. and teachers and how teachers are treated. I mm -hmm. like that. So in that sense, you know, we're talking about teachers, we talk about educators, you wanted to enhance your education, yeah. and so you applied to the Harvard Graduate School of Education. What yeah. made you apply here? Well, and then talk a little bit about some of your experiences here, and we'll lead from those experiences into what you're moving into next with, with Nerd Gang and some things like okay. that. Okay. So basically, uh, you, know, you know, James, uh, so after undergrad, I went and applied for a master's of fine art program in fiction, Yeah. right? And, you know, I, I told you about the books and stuff and my deep, deep love for books. And, you know, there was a point where I was like, I want to really seriously write a collection of stories or a novel. I wanted to apply to this program because there were some very, very prominent, well-known, and just sort of fascinating, strong writers mm -hmm. at the program, like Colin McCann, Peter Carey, Claire Massoud, um, so on and so on, right? And I figured if I get into this program, this means I can actually and really will write a book, right? Yeah. I apply to the program. The program only accepts about six out of 600 applicants. <laughs> so, you know, this was make or break for me. I was like, if I get in, if I get in, I can do it. If I don't get in, it yeah. means I can't do it. I got in. Yeah. Got into the program. After that program, I had a sort of different confidence. I felt like, yo, actually, I think I have a little, I'm a little smarter than I was giving myself credit to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what happens a lot of times for young black and, and brown men and women, right? Um, that we just, we just, we always doubt ourselves. After that, I felt like maybe I can't apply to Harvard. And, but that also taught me something else about writing and about reading, right? And what are some of the ways, you know, art is very sort of, like art is sort of, uh, sort of, the appraisal of the arts in this country is poor. Yeah. Right? right and absolutely. we see that reflected in politics. Yeah funding, et cetera, et cetera. And I was sort of thinking that, like, art can actually be as much a part of the talk in policy as legislation yeah. and anything else, yeah. right? Um, but I needed some facts. I needed some numbers to support that. And so I saw this program at Harvard, um, Art and Education, that was basically investigating the ways that we could use the arts to sort of reimagine what education might yeah. look like and to reinvent education. Yeah. Um, and so I was in a place where I felt confident enough to apply. Mm -hmm. um, and so I applied to the program. And, you know, the night before, James, I was like, I'm making, I'm going to make a fool out of myself, man. I'm not going to get into this program. Yeah, yeah. And I decided to apply. I applied anyways. And then I ended up getting in. And I ended up getting the full ride, yeah. man. And so, you know, it really was like a shock. Yeah. 
I was like, not only did I get them, but I got this. And mm. it was just like, wow, man. Like, imagine all the people that don't right. apply, right? right? Right, And then I got here. And then, James, I, I've shared this with you before, but I want to share it again. Uh, what I learned at, at Harvard was that Harvard sort of functions on this myth of itself. Yeah. That, like, everyone on the inside <laughs> is sort of a, you know, yeah. <laughs> if there's a range and, like, 10 is brilliant and, yeah. and like, one is, like, average, yeah. like, state college. Right. Everyone at Harvard is supposed to be a 10. Yeah. The interesting thing about it is that, like, only the people on the inside know that there are a lot of average-ass kids <laughs> at Harvard, right? Yeah, and there are a lot of average-ass right. yeah. kids at Harvard, and yeah. that actually there's a nice range of intelligence and in that mm -hmm. there's a lot of space for varying degrees mm -hmm. of, of intelligence at Harvard, and that I think if more folks of color, black and Latino and Latina mm -hmm. um, folks, knew this on the outside, that they wouldn't be as intimidated as to apply. And I think it's our responsibility yeah. now, after Harvard, to sort of go and share that good news with folks. Well, you got here and you got to work immediately and you mm -hmm. started to put together a lot of programming, uh, especially based around your work in in, in prisons on, on Rikers and, mm -hmm. and in that sense. How was that work leading into and your experiences putting together that programming and and these ideas leading into what you're going to do next. You can talk about Nerd Gang now if, you, mm -hmm. if you'd like to and discuss what that initiative is and, and what you want to do with it as you move forward. Okay. So basically, you know, James, I was working here at Harvard. I spent most of my time um, working on a social theory that examines the relationship between urban culture and civic duty. Um, the, name of the, the name of the theory is... Uh, PTS, mm -hmm. right? And it stands for Performing to Survive. Um, and basically, what I'm arguing is that, well, I'll save that. I'll save that for a different time. I, I want to get to some of the stuff that I'm trying to do with Nerd Gang. But basically, um, what I'm trying to do it. well, let me discuss the theory so that okay. the, 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 okay. the, uh, the Nerd Gang stuff makes sense. Uh, we have time for that? Or? Yeah, we got time. We got time for yeah. that? All right. So let me, let me put it quickly. Um, PTS, what I'm arguing is that um, the ghettos in this country are an American enterprise. The yeah. ghettos in this country are a product of American strategy, which is to say that none of us asked to live there and that they didn't sort of fall from the sky. Right. The people actually had a very deliberate strategy that there were sort of strategies like redlining, yeah. um, decisions on who to give mortgages to, on who not to give mortgages to, that in the end create what we know to be the ghettos, yeah. right? And that in the ghettos, because of the conditions, black and Latino and Latina folks, black and Latinx folks are forced to perform these identity to survive the very conditions that we have been mm. thrust into. And so these behaviors that we sort of witness aren't in fact who they want to be, mm -hmm. but who they must pretend to be mm. to survive the very place that they have been forced into, Okay, right? performing to survive. And so, you know, what are the practical implications of the theory? One, that maybe an attorney in, tw uh, an attorney in 20 years might be able to argue the case that, um, you know, the 16-year-old kid didn't mean to do what he did, uh, but he's experiencing this condition that we know to be PTS, yeah. right? And there's actually legal precedent for that. Yeah. Attorneys have made the case for trauma in, in court. Or that, you know, the government might be able to intervene if this is ever uh, legally recognized, the government might be able to intervene and say, in some cases, um, we're going to fund therapy for this kid or for that kid because I have found one of the best 
and most effective ways to deal with it is to have sit down with some of these brothers and sisters and be like, yo, um, I know what you're going through. I know that you feel like you have to put on a certain kind of, yeah. that you have to sort of posture in these places and spaces. Yeah. And and I'm here for you. And yeah. I want you to know that, um, that like, you can both do that, but you can work on this other sort of identity, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And that, and, that, and, that, and that there are ways to sort of thrive while still surviving in this place that you live in. And so the curriculum that I came up with for this is called Writing the Other Self. Okay. And what Writing the Other Self is all about is the first stage in Writing the Other Self is uh, the students are tasked with giving themselves a new name. Right. Right. And giving yourself a new name is meant to denote the beginning of a new identity. You did this while you were you practiced. You did some of this while you were a little bit of this. Not much. But this is still I'm trying to I'm trying to work it out so I could pilot this program in five different states. Right. And so the idea is that, James, um, how do we begin to reimagine ourselves outside of this sort of inflexible understanding of who we are Mm -hmm. for these kids? Right. And so. um, So, for example, I had this one student. I always share this story who gave himself the name Jean, mm-hmm. a French name, and everybody was kind of laughing at him, mm-hmm. and they were, like, confused. Mm-hmm. But what we realized is he came back the next week, and he wanted to learn French. Yeah. And so that, to me, taught me that there's a sort of, there's real depth to the process of self-fashioning, and that it's serious, right? And that in the same way, I realized in jail that there's a deep, interesting, physiological relationship between name and self-expectation. Yeah. And what I mean is that a lot of time in jails, in prisons, People give themselves these names, but they respond to the names in certain ways, mm. right? It's almost as if they summon a unique force, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, so like, I call you Trigger, yeah. or I call you uh, Jay, whatever. You yeah. know what I mean? And, like, when you hear that name, you're almost able to summon up a force yeah. because you feel like you have to respond and be a certain person when people call you that name. And mm. so the idea that I'm trying to do with the course is flip that idea on its head and how can we begin, and not to say that you have to take up a sort of, not this is not a sort of practice of the yeah. colonizer. Right, you don't yeah. have to give yourself some sort of weird right. Bob or like, yeah, right. but that, like your name could be Sean, but Sean is an entirely different person. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so that's sort of reimagining and, 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 and one of the homework, you know, it's interesting and it goes on and it goes on, but it, it's identity work and it's culture work, yeah. right? It's both recognizing how we have been made to function in this space and how we can change that. Yeah. Um, and that's the idea. That's the idea. And, and so uh, um, Nerd Gang is trying to do this work in about five different states. And um, we're trying to give these kids, these young men and young women, um, opportunities to, to sort of be multiple. Yeah. Right? To like, I'm not telling you to be different, right? This yeah. is the respectability thing, right? right? Like, I'm not telling you to get rid of that person. Yeah. Because I still very much am that person. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of the performing myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm telling you that I'm, part of it is the reality thing, yeah. right? Is that like you need, you need something else with, to function in this world. Right. And so trying to help them sort of cultivate these identities and learn them best and, and that that's, kind of stuff. That's, and, 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 and from that, you've, you've definitely spread this message of, of nerd gang around campus people. You, if you walked around this campus, especially... The Graduate School of Education campus, you will see nerd gang stickers all over people's water bottles and computers <laughs> and things like that. So I'm trying, James. You're pushing I'm it trying. out there. You're pushing it out there. Now, I do want you to talk very briefly, if you will, about your novel, uh, mm-hmm. what you're working on. 
right mm-hmm. now. Uh, and then once we get to that, you have a myriad of things you could probably recommend, books that you've read, yeah. uh, and I ask you for your recommendation at that point. But talk very briefly, if you can, about your novel. Just give people a okay. taste of what you're going with this. And, and can I just say one more thing, James, yeah, really yeah, quickly yeah. before yeah. I get into the novel, that one of the big, most important things I would love to do with the Nerd Gang Initiative is this program that I want to build into it called Mothers Know Best. Okay. And like I was telling you earlier, my mom saves my life. Yeah. And in the ghetto, the fact of the matter is this. Maybe eight out of ten households are single-parent households yeah. where mothers are those single parents, yeah. right? Yeah. And that I believe if we invest in young mothers, mm. that we can actually change this game. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's where I think we should be spending our dollars. Mm-hmm. Not to sort of say that men don't have any responsibilities, that right. fathers have to do better. Yeah. I, I recognize that. I think we all do. But that oftentimes mothers, for some reason or another, are, uh, you know, they just have it, man. I don't even know how to describe it. It's something that's sort of ineffable. Mm -hmm. It's hard to communicate. But that my mother had this thing that, like, that no one else had. Mm -hmm. And that I think that a lot of people have these relationships with their moms. And that I want to really do this um, to, to try to change the schematics um, and the outcomes that we see in the ghetto. That's interesting um, uh, you just said that because a, a friend of mine uh, would love for y'all to talk. He is he is on the end of, we got to fix the, the black, especially black family. We got to fix the black family, fix the black family. I think it's very interesting and it's a, it's a perspective that, that I've had, but I, I've never heard it verbalized the way you did about empowering mothers. We recognize there's there's a reality of single parent households. That's a reality. Yes. So why would we not invest in empowering mothers to do the best they can that's it, in their man. households? That's it. That's so. my biggest. That's the. That's the bit. That's the best thing I want to do with this yeah. because I believe you know that mothers. Mothers are the policies we ask for. Yeah. They're the good and ethical cops. They're the laptops. You know, mothers are just everything. Yeah. Um, but about the novel, James, I write a lot about the politics of beauty. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, how color has sort of become the major variable in determining the human aesthetic, mm. um, which is to say, you know, if you're if you're lighter skin, you're already a step ahead of being beautiful. Yeah, and that's no surprise, man. I was a big fan of the bluest eye. Toni Morrison mm-hmm. writes a lot about this, and it just affected me deeply growing up and still today. You know, now I'm a lot more comfortable in my skin, and I'm proud of it, and I'm happy with it. But I still see a lot of other folks struggle with it, and so I write a lot about that. Um, I want to write a lot about moms. I mean, this is just always a yeah, thing with me. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, this this interesting relationship that you know that that uh, mothers have with their children, and how mothers are absolutely and literally ready to die. Yeah. Ready to die for their kids. Um, so I write a lot about mothers, um, uh, and I write a lot about uh, uh, prison to sort of to sort of you know the, one of the best things a fiction writer can do. Is is humanize all characters. Yeah. Right? You don't ever want to find yourself reading a book and feeling like this writer wants me so badly to hate this person. Yeah. In that case, the writer has done a disservice to the text, right. um, to the reader, to his to the readership, yeah. and to his audience. Um Toni Morrison does just just so skillfully where um she can tell you about somebody that's assaulted a child or a, a woman or or has done some great misdeeds, some great wrong, but still find a way to help you sympathize with that character. Mm-hmm. And and if if I'm not trying to I'm not trying to make the case in any of my fiction writing as it sort of 
pertains to like prison or jail. That like these are some angels. That like these these are the best people yeah. in the world, right? There's a lot of responsibility there to talk about and stuff, but that they're human. Yeah, and yeah. that find the humanity. Yeah, in them. yeah. And that you know what I mean. Yeah. If we really are a country, like as we sort of love to promote ourselves of second chances, then why is it that we have kept the second chances from this, from this population yeah. and from these folks? And that I'm not asking you to love them, but I'm asking you to see them entirely I hear and fully. You. Absolutely, I hear you there, brother. As we close out, we like to do a couple of things. One, we like to have the guests give a recommendation to our audience, something to read, watch, uh, listen to, etc. Uh, anything that you would think the audience would love to hear or see in that sense. And then close out with a quote, an anecdote, something that means something to you, and then tell the audience why it means something to you. First, we'll start with your recommendation. That's what good, James. That's good. Um, I would recommend, I'm not going to talk about Toni Morrison anymore. Because <laughs> if, they, if they can't pick up Toni Morrison from that, then right. I would recommend, you know, Macbeth. Yeah. I would say go read some some Shakespeare, Macbeth, yeah. and have some fun with it, man. He's humorous. Mm -hmm. He's sort of uh, subversive. Mm -hmm. um, he's sort of melodramatic. Mm -hmm. um, and people can learn a lot, I think, about like the enduring human struggle and the enduring human questions in Shakespeare. Um, and it's a chance to get away from sort of race <laughs> yeah. a little bit. You know yeah, what I yeah. mean? It's a th yeah. Think about something else. Um, and I need those breaks sometimes. Um, so that I would say that, and and it, on that sense, uh, my recommendation on that on that same note, he said recommend Shakespeare. I'm recommending a book called uh, I believe it was written by Tom Stoppard. It's called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead, and it mm. takes two minor characters from and, Hamlet from Hamlet and looks at the perspective of what they saw as they were going through as the events of Hamlet were happening or whatnot. Wow! And so it, it's a, it's a it's a bit. Uh, I, I really like absurdist literature. It, mm. it, it kind of gets in the... So you love that. Kafka? Yeah. I, I was going to say right. Kafka, but I'm right. like, I've been talking <laughs> right. about Kafka so much this year. <laughs> wait, wait, like, to, in another vein, Waiting for Godot is my favorite book I've ever read. Uh, so Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. There's also a film. Film's not... And I'm a, I'm a, Eddie knows this. I'm a film guy more than a book you're, guy. You're a film but guy. the book is better than the film uh, in wow. that sense. So check out Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, written by Tom Stoppard. It, it, it'll make you laugh. It'll also make you think about how we often see the world, we move ourselves through the world and not think about the minor people that we run into, the minor incidents, I say not minor people, the, the person that you go and got coffee from, or the, the person that you moment, met, James, the yeah. small moments. What, or the, what was that person's perspective of yeah. what was going on around them? Uh, and You're a reader, James. I, I, I wish reader. I was, I, I'm not on your level. What man. I'm saying is that, <laughs> kind of, that kind of orientation yeah. always makes for the best readers. It, because what readers are, what writers are often trying to do is, 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 is bring every moment to life. Yeah, yeah. Don't take anything for granted. Yeah. Especially yeah. in short stories, yeah. which is my favorite form mm -hmm. in fiction. But I'll move on to the quote. Yeah, give us that's a quote. Yeah, to do. To close um, us out. And this will bring us back. This is sort of make us come full circle. Um, Freire, Paolo mm -hmm. Freire, uh, the, the education philosopher and just the, the philosopher generally, uh, says, um, I cannot be a teacher without exposing who I am. Mm. And this brings us back to the point about respectability, and this is why I love that point, because the biggest credit I have had in the classroom, and I say this a lot, and I've probably said this to you, is not the academic instruction that I'm offering the students, mm -hmm. right? There are plenty of people who could probably do be that better than me, mm -hmm. right? Um, but that I have been able to not only reflect the physical likeness of my students, but maybe more importantly, the likeness of their character. Yeah. 
And what that means for the student is that is the sort of meeting place of aspirations and what's practical. Or which is to say, when they see me and they see other folks like me who have tattoos, mm -hmm. who come to class wearing fitted caps and, and like the music that they like, they feel, well, I am, you know, there is really no difference between yeah. me and Eddie. Yeah. We're actually the same person. And that then means, if we follow that logic, that I can do what Eddie did. Yeah. I can do what James did. Yeah. I can do what these brothers and sisters are doing. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important to not try to play this whole professional thing around your students, but actually expose to them who you are yeah. so that they can then someday be in the position that you are. Absolutely. Eddie, appreciate you so much. To close this out with, it, with his quote, uh, as one more accolade, he is going to be the graduation speaker for our Harvard <laughs> Graduate School yeah, of Education. Yeah. I can't wait to hear this speech. If you heard him today, you know it's going to be a good one. So, Eddie, appreciate you coming Thank on. you, James. Yo, James, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely.